newly elected legislator in the Guatemalan Congress with the political party Movimiento Semilla, the political party of Telma Andana. The Guatemalan Supreme Electoral Tribunal announced Thursday it will hold a recount amidst fraud allegations following last elections last Sunday's presidential and legislative elections. Well, that does it for our show. Very special thanks to Maria Tarasena, uh, Libby Rainey, and Charlie Roberts. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Nermeen Sheikh, Carla Wills, Tammy Warrenoff, Sam Alcoff, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Trina Nadura, Tamari Astudio. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Me. KBOO wants you to meet us where the music's at. You can see awesome live bands like Fruition. That's right. KBOO wants to send you to a concert this summer. Just enter the KBOO Summer Music Raffle where three lucky winners will choose in order from three awesome events. You could win two three-day passes to the Northwest String Summit, July 19th to the 21st. A pair of Sunday tickets to Pickathon, August 4th. A pair of tickets to Lord Huron and Shaky Graves at the Oregon Zoo, August 12th. Tickets are just $5, and if you buy four, you get an extra raffle chance for free. Enter at kboo.fm slash give. Or you can buy tickets in person at Music Millennium or Grendel's Coffee. Deadline to enter is July 7th. See kboo.fm slash summer music raffle for full rules and details. Enter now for your chance to win. Tune in to KBOO on June 22nd and 23rd for our live broadcast for Good in the Hood Multicultural Festival. We'll start the broadcast from King School Park and Good in the Hood Saturday at 2 p.m. Bands include the Elliott Young Band, Hot Tea Cold, Ronnie Wright, Cool Breeze, and more. Sunday, we'll start the broadcast at noon and we'll feature Funky Fusion featuring Amanda Ryan, the Norman Sylvester Band, Soul Vaccination, and more. Again, that's Good in the Hood, a multicultural music, arts, and food festival celebrating diversity and connecting people with resources and experiences to strengthen unity in the community. The broadcast will be Saturday, June 22nd from 2 to 10 p.m. and Sunday, June 23rd from noon to 10 p.m. here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Good morning. Like the man said, this is KBOO Portland. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from Sweet Creek Foods, family-owned and operated in Elmira, Oregon, sourcing local organic ingredients and supporting Pacific Northwest farmers and fishermen, offering organic products including salsas, pickles, jams, tomato and enchilada sauces, and Oregon albacore tuna, packaged in sustainable glass. More information including product locator map at sweetcreekfoods.com. It's 8.02, time for Sojourner Truth Radio. Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. The Sojourner Truth team on the road in Washington, D.C. We covered the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, their Moral Action Congress. The Congress ran from Monday, June 17th, 2019 to Wednesday, June 19th. Over 1,200 people from across the country, the majority people impacted in the areas of focus of the Poor People's Campaign. The focus of the Poor People's Campaign National Call for Moral Revival are racism, poverty, the war economy, environmental devastation. They also have a goal of shifting what the Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for Moral Revival, calls shifting the moral narrative. The joint coordinators of the campaign are Bishop William Barber and the Reverend Liz Theo Harris. 
House. On Monday, June 17th, there were six hours of presidential candidates forum at the Poor People's Congress. The host of the forum was MSNBC's Joy Reid. On today's show, we return to the Poor People's Campaign National Call for Moral Revival Presidential Candidates Forum. We will hear from Senator Kamala Harris and Senator Bernie Sanders. Now, you have to keep in mind that this presidential candidates forum at a Poor People's Congress was unprecedented given the reality that in the last presidential race, poverty wasn't even mentioned, much less six hours of questions and answers with poverty being integral, being central to the discussion. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandiri. Iran's Revolutionary Guard has shot down a U.S. surveillance drone. Iran said the drone was flying over its airspace. The U.S. claimed it was over international waters and called the shootdown an unprovoked attack. In any case, it marked a dangerous new development in an already tense confrontation between the two countries. Iran's Revolutionary Guard Commander General Hossein Salami said in a televised address, Iran does not have any intention to go to war, but is fully prepared to do so. We don't want to engage in any war, but we're fully prepared for war. Today's incident was a clear sign that we will protect our borders. Iran's borders are our red line. Be careful, we have experience. We have sent a clear and firm message. The drone had violated our borders. The Trump administration has accused Iran of being behind two mine attacks on ships in the Gulf, a claim Iran has denied. The U.S. has sent thousands of additional troops, aircraft, warships, and Patriot missile batteries to the region. The buildup has led to fears of a military confrontation, either deliberate or based on miscalculations or an accident. The House of Representatives has voted to repeal the 2001 AUMF, Authorization for the Use of Military Force. Under the approved amendment, the AUMF would expire in eight months. Republican and Democratic presidents have used the AUMF over the past 18 years to avoid getting congressional approval for a series of military actions across the globe. Lawmakers approved the authorization after the September 11th attacks in 2001. Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee has long called for a repeal of the AUMF. She said passage of her amendment marked a huge step toward reasserting Congress's constitutional authority on war and peace. Lee said the vote sends an important signal to the Trump administration that it cannot take military action against Iran without prior congressional approval. The Senate is set to vote today on nearly two dozen resolutions aimed at blocking the Trump administration's sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia. Senate Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said two of the 22 resolutions would be debated and receive separate votes, while the others would be voted on as a package. The White House used an emergency declaration to approve the arms sale without congressional review. Opponents have cited Saudi Arabia's murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, and the U.S.-backed Saudi war on Yemen, which has killed thousands and created the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe. A British court has ruled that government acted unlawfully in selling weapons to Saudi Arabia that have been used in the Yemen war, though the court did not order a halt to the exports. The British Court of Appeal ruled in favor of anti-weapons campaigners. They argued the sales should not have been allowed because there's a clear risk the weapons would be used in violation of international humanitarian law. Al Jazeera spoke to anti-weapons campaigner Andrew Smith. Well, we certainly welcome the judgment, but it should never have taken a four-year legal process brought on by campaigners to make the government follow its own arms export controls. Because in that time, tens of thousands of people have been killed. 
The British government plans to appeal the ruling, but while the case is ongoing, the trade secretary said no new licenses for arms sales to Saudi Arabia would be granted. A House subcommittee held the first hearing in a decade on the issue of reparations for descendants of slaves. Texas Democrat Sheila Jackson Lee's legislation would set up a commission to study the idea of reparations. Christopher Martinez reports. A reparations bill was first introduced in the House by Representative John Conyers in 1989. When he retired, Jackson Lee picked up the ball, reintroducing the bill in the years since. Let this day, June 19, 2019, be the marker for the commitment for each and every one of you who have come to support to say, on my watch, we will watch this bill pass and be signed by the President of the United States of America. Supporters of reparations suggested slavery and its effects are not so far in the past. Actor and activist Danny Glover spoke in support of reparations. A national reparations policy is a moral, democratic, and economic imperative. I sit here as the great-grandson of a former slave, Mary Brown, who was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. I had the fortune of meeting her as a small child. Writer and activist ta Coates also testified in support of reparations. In 2014, he wrote an influential article for The Atlantic magazine called The Case for Reparations. I'm Christopher Martinez. I'm Eileen Alfandiri. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines, and we now go to our coverage of the Presidential Candidates Forum at the Poor People's Campaign Moral Action Congress. Let us go now to Senator Bernie Sanders, his opening statement, and the question and answers that followed. Thank you very much for inviting me, and let me thank Reverend Barbara and all of you for doing what has to be done. You know. Today and in the last 45 years, we heard a whole lot of talk and a whole lot of speeches and a whole lot of party platforms. But you know what goes on? Today, the average worker in America is making exactly the same wages that he or she made 45 years ago. Today in America, you got three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of America. Today in America, we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a right. Today in America, we have hundreds of thousands of bright young people who cannot afford to go to college and millions of others who are leaving school deeply in debt. So after all of the speeches of 45 years, where we are today is with more income and wealth inequality than at any time since the 1920s, and in the midst of all of that disparity, there is a racial disparity, which means that the African-American and Latino families are doing far worse than white families. So how do we change all of that other than giving speeches? Well, you are the answer. In my view, there will never be any real change in this country unless there is a political revolution. And that means that millions of people have got to stand up and fight and take on the corporate interests, the billionaire class, the 1% and tell them that in this country, our economy and our government belong to all of us, not just wealthy campaign contributors. So the way we bring about change is when all of us stand together and fight. And if we don't do that, all the legislation in the world and all the speeches in the world will not accomplish that goal. So let us go forward together with a, with new, a vision new vision that transforms this country 
into a government and an economy that works for all of us, not just the few. Thank you. All right. You may take a seat here, Senator. Thank you so much. Uh, and the first question is going to come from Bishop William Barber. Good to see you, Senator. So we um, have been talking a lot today and over this campaign, Senator Sanders, about just that. We got to do the rhetoric, but the rhetoric's got to lead to organizing, got to lead to mobilizing, got to lead to voter registration. You've done that as well. Um, we take this message where we connect systemic racism, and by that we don't mean cultural racism, we're talking about policy racism, like voter suppression, uh, mass incarceration, resegregation, high poverty schools, attack on immigrants, uh, attack on our native people. And then we connect that to systemic poverty, and we point out that concentration-wise, there are more people of color in concentrated poverty, but in raw numbers, there are more white people, 40 million more. Then we connect that to uh, ecological devastation. We connect that to militarism and the war economy that's undermining, in so many ways, our ability to strive. And then we connect it to this false moral narrative because it's made its way all up the way into the White House where these religious extremists basically say, if you're against a woman's right to choose, against gay people, for guns, for taxes, and prayer in the school, that somehow that is a great moral uh, a platform which is contrary to so much. I say all that to say, we talk like that when we go to Eastern Kentucky. Same message. We talk like that when we go to Mitchell County, North Carolina, that's 99% white and 89% Republican. And people said we couldn't organize it there. The few. Thank you. All right. You may take a seat here, Senator. Thank you so much. Uh, and the first question is going to come from Bishop William Barber. Good to see you, Senator. So we, um, the question I have for you, and we've asked all the candidates this, is how will your candidacy, your presidency, and the way you present issues go south, go south in communities that have been deliberately divided because if they ever figure out that if you white and in the and and and, and, and um and, and can't pay your light bill and you black and can't pay your light bill, we all black in the dark. So how 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 will your campaign go to those places and fuse and help to build those coalitions, not by going around race and poverty, but by going through it and being honest? Well, I think that's an enormously important question. And in a sense, that's what we've been doing in this campaign. We have been going to parts of the country where Donald Trump won. And we say to those white workers, you think African Americans and immigrants are your enemies? Well, you got it backwards. Why don't you take a look at Wall Street, the drug companies, the insurance companies, and the military industrial complex? What demagogues always do is try to divide people up so that their anger and their, their frustration comes out on minorities, people who have no political power. And Reverend, what our campaign is about is exactly the opposite. It is bringing people together and taking on Trump's divisiveness. He wants to divide us up, we have got to come together around a common agenda. Now you're right. Truth is that percentage-wise, more African-Americans and Latinos earn low wages. But numerically speaking, more whites earn low wages. More whites don't have health insurance. More whites can't afford to send their kids to college. So our job is to take on Trump's divisiveness, and his racism, and his xenophobia, and his religious bigotry, and bring people together around an agenda that works for all people. And that means that we should not be the only major country on Earth that does not guarantee health care to all people. It means 
that we should not pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs or have more people in jail than any other country on earth. So to answer your question, the way we win and what this campaign is about is waging a political revolution which understands that not only do we have to win this election, but that's not enough. To transform this country, millions of people, black and white and Latino, Native American and Asian American, have got to come together to tell the people who have the power now that that power structure will no longer continue. Thank you so much, Senator. And one, one follow-up to that question because we've tried to work hard in this campaign, and, and we've seen you and others do it, to say, yes, Trump is the problem, extremist Republicans, but for the last 40, 50 years, we haven't, we've seen Democrats not even say the word poverty. We've seen Democrats have elections and have primary campaigns and only talk about race when it's cultural, not talk about things like uh, voter suppression and then connect that to the poverty. And so the question we, we have, we ask every candidate is, 20, in 2016 there were 26 presidential debates in the primary and the general election. 140 million people in poverty, 43.5% of the country, not one debate was named as a debate to address poverty. We had less voting rights today than we had 50 years ago because of what happened with Shelby. Not one debate was dedicated to systemic racism, starting with voter suppression. We've asked every candidate, will your candidate candidacy push for, and will you, how will you do it, to say to all of the corporate media, we need some debates, at least one, and, it doesn't, and this is not a black debate, it's an American debate where we addressed in that debate systemic racism, policy racism, poverty, ecological devastation, militarism as a whole to, so that America can see these intersectional injustices and how they are hurting all of us. Can, will your campaign push for that? Because we need not a forum just in here, but a full televised debate on it. You want a short answer to that question? <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. All right, and, and the answer is, many people are giving up on politics. A lot of poor people are giving up on politics. Why do they give up on politics? Because they never hear the issues, whether it's systemic racism, whether it's voter suppression, whether it is working for nine bucks an hour, whether it's not having health care, not having childcare, they don't hear those issues being discussed. And I think your point is that we have to bring those issues that make sense, that are the issues, the life and death issues that people face. Let me just mention something. I don't know if anybody here knows this. The disparity in life expectancy in this country between rich and poor is 15 years. If you are wealthy in a community here in Washington, D.C., the likelihood is, on average, you're going to live 15 years longer than if you are living in a low-income community, and that is, by and large, a racial issue as well. How, as a nation, can we tolerate wealthy people living 15 years longer than poor people? Those are the issues that have got to be discussed from a racial perspective, from a moral perspective, and from an economic perspective. All right, let's, uh, let's throw to the audience. We have Reverend Nancy Petty. Where is Reverend Petty? Oh, there you are. Senator Clapper. <laughs> My name is Nancy Petty. I am the pastor of Pullen Memorial Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is my friend, Trish Brown. She's going to quickly introduce herself. I'm Trish Brown, a community organizer in Tallahassee, Florida. I have long fought for the restoration of voting rights and all other rights that have been withheld from folks who are formerly incarcerated. Senator Sanders. 
I hail from a state that has been a laboratory for modern-day racist voter suppression and gerrymandering. I remember in 2016 when the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down a monster voter suppression law in North Carolina saying that it targeted black voters with, and I quote, almost surgical precision. We know that this is not just happening in North Carolina. We know that all over this country, racialized voter suppression tactics are being used to keep poor people and people of color out of the electoral process and to give power to extremists who then pass policies that hurt poor people. So Trish and I want to know, as president, what will you do to address the systemic policy racism of voter suppression and expand our voting rights? The Republican governors all over this country who are suppressing the votes are political cowards. They refuse to participate in a free, fair, and open election because they know that if poor people, people of color, and young people are allowed to vote and do vote in large numbers, they will lose. So I say to those cowardly Republican governors what I have said for years. If you are too afraid to participate in free, fair, and open elections, get another job. Now, in addition, in my view, the solution to this issue is not complicated, and this is exactly what I will fight for as President of the United States. If you are 18 years of age in America, and you are a citizen of this country, you have the right to vote, end of discussion. All right? And I think also, and I think I am the only candidate who will tell you this, obviously it goes without saying that if somebody has paid his or her debt to society, has spent time in jail and got out, of course, of course those people deserve the right to vote. Well, let me take it a step further, and I've been criticized widely for saying this, but this is what I believe. If you are a citizen of America, you have the right to vote even if you are in jail. Because voting is not a question of good people or bad people. It's a question of maintaining universal right to vote for all citizens. If you commit a crime, you pay the price. So what we have got to do, understanding that we have one of the lowest voter turnouts on earth for a major country, we have got to make it easier for people to vote, not harder for people to vote. Really quickly on, on this same issue, um, Florida, um, Senator, um, the citizens of Florida, passed a constitutional amendment to restore voting rights for 1.7 million approximately people. Yes. You can clap for that, that's fine. <laughs> and your campaign, um, a lot of your campaign is based on grass movement, grassroots movements around the country. Will you utilize, sorry, your campaign infrastructure to register voters around the country? Not only, and by the way, as I think all of you know, the people of Florida as a result of a lot of work by the ACLU, Andrew Gillum, and others, won a major victory. What was the vote, 65, 66%? A huge victory. And what is the legislature trying to do right now? They're working overtime to essentially rescind what the people of Florida voted for, because they are cowards. Because they don't have the guts to allow people to vote because they understand that their agenda of tax breaks for billionaires and cuts to education and healthcare is not what the people wanted. So to answer your question, 
I believe the future of this country rests with defeating Donald Trump. And I believe that the best way to defeat Donald Trump is to register millions of young people, working people, people of color, get people involved in the political process in a way that we have never seen in our lifetimes. We are playing for the future of this country and the world. So if you're asking me, will my campaign be aggressively involved in voter registration, you can bet your last dollar we certainly will. Okay, Reverend Theo Harris. So over the last 50 years, the word poor has basically become a four-letter word. And the two responses by most of our politicians is either to pity or punish the poor, if the poor are talked about at all. Can you tell us what your plan is that's comprehensive, fully implementable, immediately to eradicate poverty, racism, ecological devastation, and militarism? 30 seconds or less. Right, here's, what, here's what I believe. We just gave a speech just on this subject a week ago. And what I did is pick up on what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said way back in 1944. You know what he said? He said, you know, we got freedoms in this country. We got freedom of religion. You got freedom of press and all that stuff. And that's good. That's very important. But we have got to go further as a nation. And that means that economic rights are human rights. Got it? Being free does not mean just that you could vote every two years. That's important. Being free means that you have a job that pays you a living wage. That's being free. Being free means that when you're sick, you go to the doctor and you don't get bankrupt when you leave the hospital. That's being free. Being free means that you have the right in the year 2019 to get all the education that you need regardless of your income. That's freedom. Freedom means that when you turn on the water faucet in your home, and I was recently in uh, Denmark, South Carolina. Yeah, we got somebody from Denmark. There you are. And I was in the home of a woman when she turns on the water, it ain't clean, it's not drinkable. And it turns out that there are thousands of homes throughout America in that position. Freedom means that you can and must live in a clean climate. Freedom means that we will end systemic racism in America. Freedom means that if you are undocumented in America, you do not have to live in fear because we will pass comprehensive immigration reform. So the point is for us to begin to think about what freedom means. And in the richest country in the history of the world, half of the people in our country should not be forced to live paycheck to paycheck. 500,000 Americans should not be forced to sleep out on the streets Tonight, millions of working-class parents should not be forced to lack affordable childcare for their kids. So what this campaign is about is not only winning the Democratic primary and defeating Donald Trump. This campaign is about transforming this country about creating a nation in which all of our people have a decent standard of living. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. I, I want to dig a little bit into this because I'm, I, I do believe that we're in a time that's really about the heart and soul of this nation, not just the next election. And I know that the issue of poverty and economics and racism and voting rights go hand in hand. My friend, dear friend of mine, like a brother to me, his name was Charles. I lost my brother Charles 
to cancer in January. I lost my friend Charlie to the waters of the Hudson River just a few days ago when he was swimming a marathon and had a cardiac event and slipped beneath the waters. He was a PhD, I mean, excuse me, an MD, PhD, medical doctor. He often marched with us, uh, Senator Sanders, around the issue of systemic racism and gerrymandering and the denial of health care in southern states like North Carolina. He would make several points. One, policies are killing my people, my, my, my patients. They're not merely dying. They're literally dying because of policies. I can interrupt. Right. The yes. estimates are that we lose about 30,000 Americans every year That's right. because they get to the doctor too late. That's right. And in our state, the legislature has refused to expand Medicaid for a number of years. 500,000 people a year, 2,800 die every year from lack of access to health care. Here's the question. And he, helped, he went all over North Carolina with me talking about this to, to, to communities. Those, even if we register everybody to vote, and we got to do that, we have a situation in the South where because of gerrymandering, racialized gerrymandering, you can have a majority, a minority group lose the majority vote for more progressive persons, but because of the stacking, packing, and bleaching of voting districts. So much so that a judge recently said in North Carolina that the racial gerrymandering in our state had produced an unconstitutionally constituted legislature. My question is, where are you on the full restoration of the Voting Rights Act? Where do you stand on making the issue of racialized gerrymandering a national issue that all people understand that racialized gerrymandering doesn't just hurt black people, it hurts everybody, and showing that in the data. In other words, teaching people that because of this racialized voter gerrymandering, that's why you have a legislature that's turning down living wages and health care. And, are you, and how are you going to come into the South, particularly campaign, and build those coalitions to do that? Of course, I believe in restoring all of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And I think what the Supreme Court did, literally the day after, or a week after that terrible decision was rendered, you had attorneys general all over this country and governors figuring out how they could suppress the vote. So as I said earlier, yeah, we're going to deal with that issue. But our job is to make it clear that anybody in this country who is 18 years of age and is a citizen can vote. And we will not prevent any state in this country from preventing them from voting. And by the way, this takes place in the North as well. In New Hampshire, they just, the Republican governor and legislature last year, passed legislation deliberately aimed at young people, keeping them from participating in those elections. Senator Sanders, yep. I'm going to do what you did to me. Can I interrupt that second? You sure can. <laughs> and the reason I say that, I understand it is in the North, but I want the nation to hear these stats. If you can control 13 southern states from Virginia to Texas by racialized voter suppression and voter suppression, you, you can control almost 170 electoral votes, 31% of the United States Congress, 26 members of the United States Senate, which means you only need 25 from the other 37 states and you only need 21% from the other 37 states to control the Congress. And then you control the legislators. And then you are able to block. But we, don't, we know it's in the North. But the people in this room understand that if we're going to fundamentally change this country, politicians can't try to find a way around the South. They better go through the South and raise those issues. If I may, I will be in South Carolina. Within the week, and you watch me talk about this issue specifically. All right, gerrymandering is clearly, like voter suppression, an attempt to undermine democracy, 
and deny a one-person, one-vote situation. And clearly, as you indicate, in the South especially, it is based on race. And we're going to end that. I have a radical idea that we should live in a country of one person, one vote, where majority rules. It's a radical idea, but that is what I believe in. So to answer your question, Reverend, we will end excessive gerrymandering in this country once and for all. What other states do you plan? Oh, oh they're playing music too early. Wait a minute. He still has 46 minutes, 46 seconds. What other states in the South are you planning on going to, Senator? Well, we've been to Georgia. We've been to Alabama. Uh, we'll be in Mississippi. We're going to go all over this country. <clears throat> and we are going to do everything we can to get ordinary people, lower-income people involved in the political process. This is the most important election in our lifetimes. We have got to stand up to Trump's divisiveness. This is an election not only for ourselves, not only for our children, but for the future of this planet. This is an election that we cannot and will not and lose. That is now Thank time to play the music. Okay, much. now you can play it. <laughs> That's Thank your you. time. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short station break, and when we return, we will hear from Senator Kamala Harris, her participation in the Poor People's Campaign Moral Action Congress Presidential Forum. I took back my humanity. Well, I, I went down to the rich man's house, and I... I took back what he stole from me. I took back. Took back my dignity. I took back. Took back my humanity. And now it's under my feet. Let me hear that where. Where? Under my feet. Where? Under my feet. Ain't gonna let no system walk all over me. And that music was from the Poor People's Campaign. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and welcome back. And we're also on Facebook. Look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott and check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org and our handle on Instagram and on Twitter at So True Radio. Uh, we are now going to uh, hear the Senator Kamala Harris and her participation in the Poor People's Campaign Moral Action Congress Presidential Forum. Let's go to that right now. Well, first, I just want to thank Bishop Barber, Reverend Theo Harris, and Joy for, for hosting this. Um, it is critically important that we have this conversation and elevate these issues at this level. So I thank you. Um, four minutes, okay. So this is about morality. It's about what are morals. It is about what is right. What are the teachings of Christ and, and other leaders who teach us the importance of living a life that is not about ourselves but about service to and for others. I think about so many issues that we work on and that I'm working on through that lens. For me, the, the, the point of the significance of all of this, and obviously I'm running for president, um, the, the goal is, is obviously, and I fully intend to win, but I tell people everywhere that for me, the measure of our success will more importantly be that at the end of this process, we are relevant that we are relevant in the lives of other people. I was raised by parents who were active in the civil rights movement. I was raised in a community of folks who said that your purpose in life should be about service to others. I was raised by parents who spent full time marching and shouting about this thing called justice and fighting for equality and fighting for fairness. And so when I then put that also in the context of what is morally right, I often think of the parable of the Good Samaritan because what the teachings are there from the book of Luke is, is it is about how do we define neighbor? Everyone knows, well, let's let us live as we, and treat our neighbor as we would want to be treated. But what I like about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is about defining who is neighbor. 
Who is neighbor? And understanding neighbor is not about the person who shares your zip code. Neighbor is not about the person who lives next door and drives the same kind of car like you do, or the person who has kids at the same school you are. What we learn in that parable is neighbor is that person you are walking by who is homeless on the street. The neighbor is somebody, some child or young person who is a runaway and who is vulnerable or has been exposed to neglect or abuse. Neighbor is that refugee who arrives on our shores seeking the support of what should be the strong arms of our nation and an embrace and not, not what we have seen from this administration was to flick them and say, go back to where you came from. Neighbor is about understanding and living in service of others, understanding that we are all each other's brothers and sisters. Seeing in each other a family member, a child, a friend, a mother, a father. And so when I talk about and think about then, policy in that context, it is everything that I think about when I think about why I support Medicare for all. It is everything I talk about and think about when I say we need to lift up working families. It is everything that I think about when I say we need to pay teachers their value. We need to reform the criminal justice system. We need to help renters out. We need to see what is happening in our country and treat our fellow human being as we would our neighbor, as we would want for ourselves. And so that's how I think about the issues before us. And I thank you all, everyone here, for your service, for your leadership, for this being such a personal cause, which is to fight for the least among these and to give voice and to lift people up with all that they deserve around voice and around dignity. And so with that, I thank you. All right. Okay, we're gonna go right to the audience uh, for the first question. Mashaila Buckmaster, where are you? Ma yep, Mashaila, where, oh, there you are. Hello. Hello. Um, my name is Mashaila Buckmaster. I'm here with Hold that mic right on up so we can hear you. I'm here with my friend Anu Yadav uh, from Los Angeles who has experienced homelessness, a lack of health care, and joblessness. I'm from Grace Harbor, Washington. There you'll find a lot of millennials trying to survive in a county with few options. I know it because I've lived it myself. Uh, when I was homeless, I would sleep on friends' couches or, or dirty laundry piles, or if I had to sleep outside, I just wouldn't sleep. And you might be surprised by how many folks live there, living there are young. We might not fit the image of millennials on TV, but we're a part of an entire generation that has been made poor and cannot even afford a place to live. The question is, what is your plan to secure, to secure decent and affordable housing for all? How will you fix this country's broken infrastructure that is hurting and, yes, killing poor people like me? Yeah. Good question. Thank you for your leadership and for your courage and for your strength. So um, let's talk about affordable housing. I'll start there. It's one of the biggest issues that we are talking the least about, and we have got to deal with it. Um, in 99% of the counties in the United States, if you are a minimum wage worker working full-time, you cannot afford market rate for a one-bedroom apartment. That's the reality in America today. And so I am proposing what I call the Rent Relief Act. So for renters who are paying more than 30% of their income in rent plus utilities, they will receive a tax credit so that they can be able to get through the month paying rent. And here's how I feel about it. I also connected to the issue of what we need to do around equal pay. I connected to the issue of what we need to do to raise the minimum wage. When we talk about people in poverty, well, we know that the numbers are such that if you pay attention to federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour, those are poverty wages. That's $15,000 a year. So I also support what we need to do, and I'm an advocate for it. I was actually marching with folks in Vegas a couple of days ago, picketing McDonald's, about what we need to do to lift up the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour, but a livable wage for folks. So there is that piece. There's the rent piece. There's about livable wage. What we also need to do is understand that in America today, almost half of American families cannot afford a $400 unexpected expense. That could be the car breaks down, that could be a health, health bill you didn't see coming. $400 unexpected expense can topple the stability of that family. In America today, 
In 99% of the counties, minimum wage workers can't afford a one-bedroom apartment. In America, last year, 12 million people took out a loan of, on average, $400 from the payday lender at an interest rate often in excess of 300%. These are the realities of America today. And I find it just so, I, I have long words and then I have curse words and I'm not gonna say those because this is a religious gathering kind of. Um, but, let me, <laughs> but let me say, you know what I find? I find it interesting that these supposed leaders here in Washington, D.C., and in particular this administration, they walk around peacocking about how, oh, the economy is great. The economy is great, they say. And then when you ask them, well, how so are you measuring the greatness of this economy of yours? They point to the stock market. Well, that's fine if you own stocks. Then we ask, well, how else? Do you have another measure for the greatness of this economy of yours? And they talk about the unemployment numbers. Well, yeah, people are working. They're working two and three jobs. And in our America, nobody should have to work more than one job to have a roof over their head and food on the table. And so when I look at this issue, I think of it through all of those lens. You've talked about infrastructure. Well, let's, let's deal with that on the macro and then on and how it relates to everyday living. So $400 unexpected expense can completely topple the stability of almost half of American families. You know how much it costs to buy four tires? Why do you need to buy those tires? Because the roads and bridges are falling apart and you have to keep driving over potholes to get to work every day. These issues are connected. These issues are connected, not to mention infrastructure. In the context of if we really have a meaningful dedication to infrastructure, that's about jobs. That's about an improved quality of life for working people who have to travel often two hours one way or another because they can't afford to live in the same place where they work. All of these issues are connected, not to mention what we need to talk about in terms of building up the infrastructure of this nation around water, around what we need to do around renewable energies, and again, what that will create in terms of jobs, but also what that will create in terms of a better standard of living and a healthy, not even healthier, healthy standard of living for folks who deserve to be able to drink clean water and breathe clean air. So I appreciate your point. And I, I will also tell you, I worked for years on homeless youth and that issue, in particular because in San Francisco we had so many, and, 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 a, and a lot of who were LGBTQ and fled the places where they were growing up because they did not feel safe or welcome or supported there. And for years I worked on the issue that was about, you know, giving folks and making sure that they had a safe place to live. And so I just want to say to you that I admire your courage and your strength. So thank you. All right, Senator. Um Pastor Theo Harris. Great. So I want to kind of continue in the conversation about poverty. There's 140 million people who are poor or low income in this country. Uh, poverty is, is criminalized. It's perfectly legal to be homeless, um, but it's illegal if you move into a house um, and you can't pay the rent. And this is connected to the fact that our country also spends 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on the military and on militarizing our communities here at home. What do you have to say about both the problem of, of militarization of our communities and militarism abroad, yeah. and the lie that we can't do better, the lie of scarcity, yeah. the lie that, that uh, people are to blame for their poverty, uh, the lie that we should just fight each other um, over crumbs instead of, yeah. of having the whole pie? Right, and, right. And, and, and the idea being that it's, and the idea being that it's a zero-sum game. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, on the issue of militarization of police, I have a long-standing record of saying we need to demilitarize police, and you know, and we really need to get to a point where communities, frankly, don't need don't need a law enforcement response to what's happening in their communities because they are safe communities. And how do you achieve safe communities? One of the smartest ways to do that is to help communities have resources so that people can have jobs and can have the kind of support that they need to be able to do what they naturally want to do, which is raise their children and live a good quality of life. You know, there's a saying, it's actually Father Boyle um, in Los Angeles, and he says, nothing stops a bullet like a job. Right, And so I am a big um, believer in that approach. In terms of what we need to do to also understand that we are criminalizing poverty, I'd, I'd bring up an associated point, which is the issue of money bail. 
So I actually have been a, a leader in the United States Senate on this issue, which is the cash money bail system in our country, I believe is, is, is about not only, a, it's not only a criminal justice issue, it's an economic justice issue. Because what ends up happening is that people are charged with a crime and they sit in jail for days, weeks, even months and years waiting to go to trial simply because they cannot afford the bail to get out. So the person who has money in their back pocket for the same charged offense is walking free and the person who does not is sitting in jail. And let's talk about exactly how that plays out in real life. Let's say a woman is picked up for shoplifting something of great value, so it's considered grand theft. She gets arrested, she gets charged, she shows up in bail and the judge says, well, your bail is $10,000, which is the average bail in the United States. Well, her family's sitting in the courtroom, right? She doesn't have $10,000 in her pocket. Her family's sitting in the courtroom thinking, we gotta get auntie out. So where do they then go? They go across the street to what is across the street from every courthouse in America, the bail bondsman. The bail bondsman says, I'll help you out, but you have to give me 10%, which you will not get back. That's the fee for me putting up the $10,000. Well, that's $1,000. The average American doesn't have $1,000 sitting around. So then that family has a couple of choices. They can beg, borrow, and steal to come up with that $1,000. Or let's say she's got young children at home and she's a single parent knowing that if she does not get home, Child Protective Services will come and take her children, right? Or maybe there's a job that she is missing every day that she's sitting in jail and she relies on that job to pay her rent. So what do you think she might do? It is very likely when the public defender comes to her and says, you know, if you plead guilty, you'll get credit for time served and you can get out, that even if she has a defensible case weighing the options, she is very likely to plead guilty and then have a felony record, all because she did not have the money to get out. And so what I'm proposing is we reform the criminal justice system around a number of things, but including this issue, which is squarely an economic justice issue as much as it's a criminal justice issue. Can I ask you a quickly related question, um, just as a follow-up, because we know now the other way uh, in which the criminal justice system is being employed in a public policy way, in a very negative way, is with immigrants. Yeah. You're obviously from the state of California, where there's a, a immigration yeah. is a top-of-mind issue. We're now seeing the mass incarceration of children um, including children who are being taken away from their parents by our government. Um, and for the most part, the people who are being attacked in this way are poor. They're either poor people who are coming here seeking refuge, but even just in general, the criminal justice system does target the poor. Yeah. What could a president do? I mean, obviously, besides reversing a policy like that, but can you talk about the yeah, intersection sure. of the criminal justice system and poverty yeah. and immigration? Yeah, d definitely. And, it, and it's, um, you know, look, we have babies sitting in cages because of the policies of this administration. They had a, a, talk about morality, a policy that is about separating children from their families. We all probably read recently that, that toddler, right? In the name of border security, when in fact what it is is a human rights abuse being committed by the United States government. And so let's also look at the issue in the context of profit because you know what's happening, and especially with this administration. These for-profit private detention facilities, and then also all the money that's getting doled out to private prisons. And let's be clear about the business model, shall we? The business model is for certain human beings to make money off the incarceration of other human beings. So as president, one of the first acts of business for me would be to get rid of these private detention centers and private prisons. Just a few days ago, I was in Alabama talking with folks about a number of issues, including climate change, because there are folks in Alabama who've got sewage in their backyards. And I mean, to be explicit, that sewage doesn't know the difference between a white and a black person or a Republican and a Democrat. And so, yes, absolutely, and I, and I believe that, I have always believed, frankly, you know how like congressional delegations 
go, they go all these congressional delegations, they go all over the world, they take a member, bunch of members of Congress. I believe that there should be very well-planned congressional delegations to Appalachia because there, the media has skewed the face of poverty in America. And the reality is poverty in America impacts everybody. I don't need to tell you what you already know. At least 40% of the people in poverty in America are, are white. And so the fact that some would then try and do, you know, and remember for years, the welfare queen and the this and the that, that was always all about racializing poverty. And we have to continue to aggressively work against that stuff. And will you go to the networks and say, we need to have at least one uh, um, um, debate, live televised, that connects systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, on live TV yes. for all of America. I love that. Yes. Yes. That would be fantastic. We are out of time. Uh, today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd also like to thank assistant producer Ramiro Fudes, also on the ground working hard in Washington, D.C., and our engineer, Mr. T. Teddy Robinson. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. I did forget, and I'm going to do it right now, to give a shout-out to our SoundCloud listeners. And today we want to give a shout-out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Mississippi. And internationally, we would like to give a shout-out to our SoundCloud listeners in Thailand. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And we're going to let them hear what we're doing here. All right. Here we go. Well, I, I went out to the Congress and I, I took back what they stole from me. I took back, I took back my dignity. Cable Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is also available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Board meetings will be conducted at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The KBU Board